Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm glad you could join us as we continue this endeavor to grab hold of God's Word, to really understand it and how it applies to our lives. And I appreciate you joining me as we continue forward in this journey. Today, we're going to start in the book of Hebrews. We start working our way through this entire book. And the book of Hebrews is a, a fascinating book, and it presents to us some very lofty ideas in the sense that it's talking about uh, cosmic reality. And I know it almost sounds weird to say that, almost a sci-fi aspect to it, but it's not. I mean, this is talking about the expanse of creation and who God is and how God has revealed himself. And it it compares the, the writings of the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the first five books of scripture, and and takes it and compares it to Christ and sets it in position there. I mean, it's just, there's some incredible themes and some wonderful, wonderful truths revealed in this text. So I invite you to join me as we begin this study of the book of Hebrews together. Let's turn to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, both the word that has been handed to us in the form of text and for your word incarnate, Jesus the Christ. Lord, we celebrate the supremacy of Christ. And we praise him as Savior and as Lord of our lives. We thank you for his word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and invited us into relationship with you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, as we look at the book of Hebrews, just a little bit of background. One is that we're not sure exactly when it was written. It seems to have been written pretty, pretty late, if you will, in terms of a dating. It was written prior we believe, to the fall of the temple or the destruction of the temple in AD 70, because when he makes reference to temple ceremonies, it's current reference, not past reference. So that kind of tells us it wasn't after AD 70. But other than that, it's kind of up in the air. We think it was rather late, probably uh, during the time of persecution of Christians by Nero after the fire that destroyed Rome in 64. Uh, it may have even followed either the crucifixion of Peter in Rome in, say, around 65, or Paul's beheading in or imprisonment and then beheading in Rome in 64, 65 window. We're not sure where this falls, but we know who it was written to. It was written to Hebraic background Christians. Christians that came out of a Hebraic Jewish background. They had a, a great familiarity with Torah law, with the, the first five books, the Law of Moses. They had an understanding of the temple functions and of Jewish tradition, yet they are Christians. They have accepted Christ and know him as Savior and Lord. And there's a call to perseverance and a reminder of the supremacy of Christ. So there was a need for them to persevere, not just a general need, hey, hang the Christ, hang on the Christ, but this things are tough. There is a temptation to align yourself back with your Jewish roots and and 
jettison that obedience and acceptance of Christ, or or maybe there's a, a lure to just drop it altogether because it's easier to not follow Christ than it is to follow Christ because you're in an environment that is persecuting Christians. So we're not sure exactly of everything that's going on, but there's definite indications throughout the book that it is a time of persecution that there is this great temptation of these believers from a Hebraic background to fall back into Judaism as their their hope and their, their trust for salvation in the Mosaic law instead of in Christ. And there's warning not to do that. So that's the framework that's going on. Uh, the other big unknown is who wrote it? Now, a lot of people answer that with, oh, Paul wrote it. Well, Paul doesn't claim to have written it. Most of Paul's work, he's pretty upfront about, and he writes in the form of a letter. This is not written in the form of a letter. This book is actually written in the form of a, a sermon from its day. Uh, but there's no claim in it as to who the author is. There's lots of speculation. I mean, some say Paul, some say Luke, some say Barnabas, some Apollos, some Silas, some Philip, some Priscilla. I mean, there, there's all the, I've even heard Lydia suggested as author for it. We have no idea, but we know that what it relates is true because it is in line with the rest of God's word, his revealed truth. So we know it's consistent. We know that it draws from the, the teachings of the apostles. Uh, it's in line with what the apostles in the early church thought and taught. So we, we see that in there. We don't see this aberrant book over here that doesn't fit with everything else and presents everything else in a different light. Um, it's consistent with the whole of the testimony of Scripture. So we're pretty confident in the book of Hebrews, even though we can't nail down exactly who wrote it or even exactly what date they wrote it. There's clues, but we don't know for sure. Now, just for the sense of full disclosure, let me tell you, I think Barnabas wrote it. And that is based very soundly on my unfounded opinion. Yeah, I have no clue who wrote it. I just like to think Barnabas wrote it because it does have some of the style of Paul, but not all of it. And it does kind of relate to some of the issues that, that Paul spoke about. But remember, Paul and Barnabas were on missionary. The first missionary journey was Paul and Barnabas. And actually, Barnabas was the lead on that. So... Paul could have been influenced in his style by Barnabas. Of course, it could have been Luke. Luke penned much of what Paul wrote in the form of letters. He was the amanuensis, the scribe that wrote them down and maybe finessed the language a little bit or whatever. So it's possible that what we're seeing is actually Luke's style represented here in the parts that seem reminiscent of Paul. And yet there's parts of it that are very non-reminiscent of Paul. So, or it could have been Paul, I don't know, but I just like to think it was Barnabas and that's just my opinion and it doesn't count for anything, but that's the perspective I'm going to run from. So, or run with, I should say. Um, so just be aware of that as we go into this. Now, having said all that, let's turn our attention actually to the text, the first chapter, 
has some some beautiful imagery in it and a lot of quotes from the Old Testament. And I'll try to point those out as we go through and emphasize some of that. So I appreciate you joining me on this journey as we look at the book of Hebrews. You're going to see an ebb and flow throughout the book of Hebrews. And that ebb and flow is this. He starts with what we have as the first four verses um, that present that, that Christ is supreme, that he is God's final word and revelation, that uh, he's above everything else. And then we take that theme and throughout most of the rest of the book, you're going to have a presentation of something Old Testament and then showing how Christ is above it, is greater than. And we're going to see that over and over again. And I'll point it out, but watch for it as we move through the chapters. Now, not each chapter is going to do that, but taken as a whole, that is the ebb and flow through the book of Hebrews. Now let's look at the text. Now, as we start in verse one of Hebrews, again, I want to point out that verses one through four, actually in their original Greek, are one sentence. It's a very complex and long Greek sentence, but all four of those verses form one Greek sentence. English translators break it up into multiple English sentences just to make it a little less confusing. Um, just the way we think about the wordings and the phrasings, it just makes sense in English to have it broken up that way. Let's look at those first four verses, shall we? It says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son and, oh, excuse me, son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. Now that's S-O-N, son. He created the universe. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the sun is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their name. Now, what the author of Hebrews has done here is he's established who Christ is, that, that supremacy of Christ, if you will. Now, let me break this apart and take it piece by piece. This long ago, God spoke, I mean, the, this speaking, this revealing of God, that it was in many ways to the ancestors, that would be the, the Hebrews, through the prophets. And we do see God revealed in different ways throughout um, the work of the prophets, whether we're talking Elijah or Elisha or Hosea or Micah or Habakkuk or any of those guys, we see God revealing himself to the people, even through Moses, the giving of the law, the law shows us the, the holy, the ethical, the, the character of God that was unknown to us prior to that. So God revealed himself in many ways and at many times through the various prophets. Then he points out, but now 
Things have changed. Now we're in the final days. How many final days are there? Don't know. But the kingdom of God has been established. Christ has come. And at that point, everything changed. When Jesus, at his first sermon there in the synagogue, read from the scroll of Isaiah and then closed it and said, Today, these words have been fulfilled. Um, yeah, that's the inauguration of the kingdom. So, so, and now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promises everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. God's creative act was through Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Well, because it says so here, but we also see it over in the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him, all things that were created were created. Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus is God. Triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is Jesus God the Father? No. But Jesus is God. God the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. One triune being in perfect fellowship. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. So we're seeing this. The author of Hebrews is equating Jesus with God here. When he talks about Jesus radiates God's glory. Well, who can radiate God's glory? God. Uh, When he talks about uh, he is the expression of the very character of God. He is that expression of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Yeah. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Takes that seat next to God the Father in the throne room of heaven. Uh, refer to the study on Revelation. Um. Yeah, that exalting of Jesus isn't what makes him God. It's not what makes him part of the deity. Instead, it is an acknowledgement for all to see of the reality of him being that already. It is his nature. It is who he is. So there's there's so much going on in this, so much foundation that's being said, and pretty much everything that comes after this is arguments or or laying out the line of thought to confirm these first four verses. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. Now we get into that that first expression of Jesus being greater than something Old Testament. Not that angels are strictly Old Testament, but understand first century world um, Hebraic Jewish people were fascinated by angels. They had built an entire hierarchy of angels 
and what they were responsible for. And uh, they were just fascinated with this idea of angels. So the author of Hebrews takes that. And, and part of that is built around a, a verse in Deuteronomy. It's like Deuteronomy, I don't know, 33, 4, something along in there, um, that makes reference to the law of God being handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai by an angel. Um, an angel of the Lord, an angel acting on behalf of God at the direction of God, because angels don't act other than by the direction of God. And by the way, just a side note, that's why it's not healthy for us as believers to focus on angels now. Wasn't healthy for the Jews back then either, by the way, spiritually healthy, um, is that we tend, when we start getting fascinated by angels and we want to understand about angels and we want to, you know, who's my angel and whatever all that stuff is, you easily fall into the trap of focusing on the messenger, the angel, literally the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. So we start focusing on the messengers of God instead of the one who sent the message. I mean, that would be like if I got a message from the Queen of England and, you know, she sends some envoy to deliver the message. And I started thinking that the messenger was the monarch of England. You'd go, well, that's dumb. That was the messenger. You know, maybe it was sent by a courier, maybe DHL or somebody shows up at my house with this message that has the royal seal on it. And I'm like, oh, come in, have, you know, I don't know, tea. Yeah, I do have some tea in my house. Um, and, and just was so honored that this employee of DHL was there because they delivered this message from the queen. Instead of paying attention to the message and the one who sent it. Now, I'm not equating the Queen of England with God, okay? Don't. It's just an analogy. Just saying it would be really messed up to start treating the messenger like the one who sent the message. Um, we, we can't do that. We have to remember that the angels aren't the focus. The God who sends them is the focus. And in the first century world, the Jews were just enamored with this concept of angels. And so that's where the author of Hebrews begins. He says in verse 5, For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. And here we start quoting you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now that's from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It's from 2 Samuel 7, 14. That's where he's quoting those. And then he goes on and he says, God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, that's from... That's from Psalm 2 through 7. It's from 2 Samuel again. I, that It all fits in there. 
And when he brought his supreme son or firstborn is, is how it's commonly translated, but New Living Translation translates it as supreme, with the first one, the one that is above all others. And given the idea of what it meant to be firstborn son in that day and age, that is a proper understanding of it. So maybe it'll help you think about this passage a little differently. Verse 6, And when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, Let all of God's angels worship him. Regarding the angels, he said, He sends his angels like the winds and his servants like the flames of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. He also, we're going to go back and explore what all this says. He also says to the Son, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and made the heavens in your or with your hands. They will perish, but you will remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. Now I'm going to stop there. And I want us to look at this. And by the way, let me just give you the rundown on this. The reference in verse 7, he sends his angels like the winds, his servants like flames of fire. Uh, Psalms 104 verse 4 is where he's quoting that. In verses 8 and 9, he's quoting from Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7. Uh, in, let's see, in verses 10 through 12, he's quoting from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. So all of this is Old Testament. He's quoting what God has said in the Old Testament to point out who Christ is. And that's important. As he is talking to a Hebraic Jewish background group of believers that seem to be struggling with this idea of falling back into Judaism, uh, because it's easier, because it's comfortable. I don't know what the reason is or was, but there's that temptation there. And he's calling them to remember the supremacy of Christ and to hold fast to their commitment to stay faithful and obedient to Christ. Cling to Christ. Now, in all of these passages, he says some pretty powerful stuff. So let's go back and look at it again. So as we go back and look at this, again, in verse 5, God never said to any of the angels the stuff he said, what he said to Jesus, okay? This is unique to Jesus that God says this, and he says it in Scripture. This isn't, well, I'm claiming God said this. This is God's revealed word, the text of Scripture, an Old Testament Scripture at that. And he says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. That's that, that acknowledgement that you are mine. I am yours. There's a connectedness there. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. And in verse six, when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. Now he is the only one called the son of God. He's the one that God says, I am his father. He is the one who says all the angels are going to worship 
him. So it's kind of hard to argue that Jesus is less than the angels, right? Remember, this is all presenting the idea that the Son is above the angels. The Son is greater than the angels because the angels represented the giving of the law. And the author of Hebrews is starting to present the idea that the Son is above the law. Uh, he, he takes precedent over the law. Not that the law isn't in line with his nature and character, because law reveals the nature and character of God. But Jesus is even more than the angels that handed the law down to Moses, which at this point was something that the Jews of the first century world were clinging to. But there's more than that. Because not only does he say, let all of God's angels worship him, going on in seven, he says, regarding the angels, he says, he sends his angels like the winds and his servants like the flames of fire. But to the sun, he says, so he sends them like servants. And uh, wind and fire were seen as manifestations of angels in the first century world. That was part of that whole fascination with angels. But to the son, he says, now listen to this. This is the author of Hebrews quoting Old Testament scripture saying, look, this is what God says about Jesus. Hear these words. Your throne, O God, God says about Jesus, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Is Jesus God? Well, God just called him God. He's going to do it again. You rule with a scepter of justice. You're, you love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, and there he's referring to Jesus, O God, then comma, your God has anointed you. Wait, there's one God. But God the Father is calling Jesus the Son God and saying that God the Father has anointed him. Confused yet? triune God. It's The Trinity is a tough concept to wrap our finite minds around, but it is God in three persons. Check out things like the Nicene Creed, um, the council at Nicaea somewhere around 350 AD uh, really laid this out and it might make your head swim, but it lays a solid foundation for understanding who God is in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three, yet one. Well, he goes on, verse nine, you love justice, hate evil. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. He also says to the Son, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. This is God speaking to the Son. They will perish, but you will remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. Wow. You get the idea from that, that Jesus is in a class all by himself. It's not, 
you know, oh, he's one of the angels that has been exalted. And we have groups that teach that. Oh, Jesus is really just the archangel Michael. No. Jesus is something completely different than an angel. Jesus is exalted here as God by God. Ooh. That's pretty big, isn't it? I don't know if you've wrestled with that before. If you haven't, um, now's a good time to do that. Go back and reread those passages. Get a handle for what the author of Hebrews is presenting here. Because it's important. Because it is that argument that in Christ we are connected to God. And we're going to see that more and more as we go through the text. Now, as I read through this, and we've been through it a couple times now, as I read through it and then went back and explained through it, I stopped at verse 13. And I did that for a reason. I wanted to take 13 and 14 as a, as a separate. It fits into the whole larger discussion. But I wanted to really deal with that section where God is talking about and to Jesus and declaring who he is. Now in 13, he says, and God never said to any of the angels. Remember, he said that before that last section. And God never said to any of the angels. And here's the quote. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. That's from Psalm 110, verse 1. This is, therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. God never said to any of the angels, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. In the ancient world, when you conquered another nation or you went to war against another ruler and you overpowered them, the symbolic act that was performed to show your ultimate victory over that other individual was you would put your foot on their back or on their neck. And thus it showed that you had complete power over them. They were totally defeated because that was a humiliating thing to literally be someone's footstool, a place to rest their foot. Um, here God is saying to Jesus, sit in the place of honor at my right hand. This is the exaltation. This is Jesus being exalted again. Does this make him God? No, he already was. This declares to everyone who he is sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. God never said that to an angel. He said it to Jesus. And so the, uh, the summation of the author of Hebrews in chapter one, honestly, he didn't do chapter breaks, but you know, in that God never said this to the angels. The culmination of that is in verse 14. Therefore, angels are only servants. 
spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. Angels are there to minister to believers. Servants of God meant to carry out His will. That's what they are. That's who they are. They are not Jesus. Jesus is so much more than them. Why is that important? Because you were dealing with a group of people that was clinging to this fascination in angels. The angels were powerful. The angels could be trusted in. The angels were the ones doing that. Angels are just the messengers. They're just the servants. Look to the king. Look to the Messiah. Look to Christ and hold to him. Now, we're going to see that really play itself out in the next chapter when we begin to look at this warning against drifting away and... and we're going to talk some more about the sun and who he is, but we've already shown that he's above the angels. We're going to take it from there. That rounds out chapter one. And uh, I hope you have found it interesting enough to continue to dive into the book of Hebrews. Um, there is some fascinating, huge concepts being presented here, and it's worth study. Read it in some different translations. Get a handle on it. But understand, it is all about Jesus. And if you're questioning why, that's going to become clear as we continue our study. The author of Hebrews makes the importance, not just the supremacy of Jesus, but what Jesus means in our lives and to our eternal reality. He makes very clear in the coming chapters. So I hope you'll hang with us for the rest of this study of the book of Hebrews. I welcome you as part of that. Uh, it is a joy to walk beside you in this journey. Now let's turn to the Lord. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word, the given word of scripture, but also through your word, the Son that you became flesh and dwelt among us. That you revealed yourself to us, that we might know you. But more than that, Father, you in Christ died on the cross, atoning for our sin and rose again, showing victory over death and the promise of eternal life. Lord, we thank you that you removed that separation between us and you. That you removed our sin and saved us. Lord, we thank you. And again, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of who Christ is. That we might cling to him more tightly. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.